You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The return of the mall, the need for homes, and the need to drill all involve one thing, and it's land. So is it better to bet on the location rather than the land itself? With every investor looking into this lately, we will explore that. Plus, chips and candles, the action, the story, and the trade on three big earnings, NVIDIA, Cisco, and Bath & Body Works. I'm still getting used to as a publicly traded company all by itself. And get back on the bike after a huge drop on the back of an earnings miss and a 70-cent decline uh, from its all-time high, is Peloton finally a buying opportunity? One analyst says yes, and he will make his case. But we begin with today's markets, and Dom Chu is here to walk us through that. We are dipping today, but not by that much, Kelly. So again, record highs, not that far from where we are right now. However, you will see the Dow down half a percent. The S&P down about a quarter of a percent and about a near half percent decline for the Nasdaq Composite. 46.88 is the last trade for the S&P 500. Just to give you some context on the move so far today, at the highs of the session, right after the opening bell, we were up just one handle, one point there, down 16 points at the lows. So that gives you an idea of the trading range, currently down one right now. If you look at some of the other parts of the market, cryptocurrencies, a focus right now, it might not seem so crazy. We're only up only 1% or so, $773 for Bitcoin, 60376 the last trade there. But at one point today, we did go below the 59000 per coin mark, and we're roughly, call it, 12% below the record highs that we've seen for Bitcoin. So watch those cryptocurrencies. And then, of course, the retail earnings parade continues this week. Today, it's going to be Target and Lowe's moving in somewhat different directions. Target, Lowe's, both coming out with better-than-expected results, top line, bottom line. The concern here for Target is that Target says they are going to absorb a lot of the pricing pressures on the cost side and not pass them on to consumers. What that means is that they're going to take maybe a gross margins hit. Profit margins may squeeze. Concerns there driving that stock down about 4%. Lowe's is meanwhile up half a percent as well. It upped its forecast. By the way, Kelly, just to give you an idea of the context, Target shares this year up roughly 44%. Roughly 54% gains in 2021 for Lowe's. So, yes, the pullbacks could be there, but it's not from these really depressed levels. Back over to you. All right, Dom. Thank you, and we'll see you again soon. Now, while the market debates how hot inflation will be next year and the timing of rate hikes, my next guest is focusing on the one thing he says will be inflation-proof, land. He says we need it to drill for oil and gas, to build homes, and to develop shopping malls. And it's a great inflation hedge. Joining me now is Bill Smead. He's the chief investment officer of Smead Capital Management, portfolio manager of the Smead Value Fund, which I think you said is having its best year ever, Bill. You're up 46 percent this year, nearly doubled the S&P. And Target, in fact, is one of the top holdings. So, Land, let's start with what your advice is to investors, Bill, who are very interested in this right now. Well, if you go back and look at the 1970s when inflation was a problem for the whole decade, there weren't a whole lot of areas that actually did benefit. I notice a lot of people are coming out and saying, well, this company can pass along price increases, so therefore they're insulated from inflation. But oil and gas and real estate did extremely well during the 70s when almost nothing else did well when inflation became the number one issue. So which kind of land are you interested in? Because there's a lot of people who are literally online, you know, buying parcels of land in states uh, everywhere across the country. Is that a strategy you'd recommend? Or are you talking about stock picking with land as the most important aspect of it? Yeah, two or three years ago, people thought I was off my rocker. 
and some people still do, but <laughs> because we thought that the millennials would spread themselves out all across the country, right? We thought it would be the biggest migration in migration that we'd seen since the coal mines closed. Well, that didn't happen for the first year or two. And then the pandemic hit. What have we had happen? So now the second and third and fourth tier series uh, cities are, are seeing that population and all you need is water and Wi-Fi. So we think there's more money in that case by building the house because the home builders make their money from building houses, not developing lots today, which makes them a much less difficult, much less uh, cyclical business. And that's the only way that an individual household can insulate themselves from inflation is being their own landlord. And, and that payment is fixed rent. Yeah. And again, for those who bought a house in the rush over the past year, or year and a half, you're saying to them, you know, they're all worried they bought at the highs. And you're saying it, it's still a good inflation hedge and could still hold its value well over the next decade. So you like D.R. Horton. You like Lennar. Let's talk quickly about what's going on with oil and gas, where you like Continental and Occidental. What are your thoughts on the Biden administration trying to lower the price of oil here? I, I'm, we're not political in this at all. Uh, I find it interesting that you pay a dollar more for gasoline in California than you do in Arizona. So what's the difference? The taxes. I, I don't see I don't hear President Biden picking on states that are raising the price of gasoline by taxing people to death. So it's just bizarre. I mean, you restrict the Keystone pipeline. You say no drilling on federal lands. You 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 don't do anything else. And you wake up when the law of supply and demand is demanding higher prices. And you say, you're bad people. Yeah. No, I take your point, And your holdings speak for themselves on that front. Let's talk about shopping malls. Mass Rich Simon Property Group. What kind of upside do you see? These names have already doubled this year. Well, we did some forensic research last night. We went and saw the James Bond film uh, <laughs> at the Arizona Biltmore Mall area and then went over and had a bite to eat at one of the restaurants that Mace Rich uh, is the landlord to. And you couldn't get a parking spot. It was a Tuesday night and you could not get a parking spot. And not all the snowbirds have come down here yet. So it, it, it is uh, we don't know what's going to happen with COVID. We have another spat here. People could back off a bit. But what we think is happening is people are spreading their Christmas shopping out over a three month time frame to make sure they don't get stuck looking for something that's not in stock. And it's and very favorable for the landlord. So how much upside do you see for those names? And I'll throw Target in there as well, because we saw, obviously, the stock reaction, some concerns about profit margins. Yeah, Target's been spectacular for us ever since Jeff Bezos laid that in our lap in 2017 when he went into the grocery store business. I thank God every day for Jeff Bezos going into the grocery business. Uh, it, 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 yeah, yeah, you have to understand that that we are... Uh, looking at shopping that people thought was going to be completely dead. Mm -hmm. And now what we know is the combination of, of online and, and physical stores is magical, right? It 80% of the orders that e-commerce for Target are picked up at the store. What, what Bezos did invited Walmart and Target to be major competitors because of their physical presence and the not having to provide the logistics. By the way, Target's down today because they're worrying about gross margins. How come Amazon's not down today because Target's worrying about gross margins? They've got a nightmare going with doing all the logistics. So it's interesting. 
Well, and I know your views, uh, you're concerned about tech and how that could trade, but this cer- certainly has come around your way this year. Again, uh, up about 46% year to date, one of the best years you've ever had. Bill, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Bill Smead with Smead Capital Management. Kind of related, this news alert out of the bond market right now with the 20-year bonds that went up for auction went over pretty soggy. Rick Santelli here with all the details. Rick? Yeah, soggy. Perfect word. I gave it a dog plus, but there's definitely a Roger Maris asterisk on this grade, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. 23 billion, 20 years, the auction, the yield at the Dutch auction, 2.065. The when issued market was trading 2.05. So it tailed a basis point and a half. But the problem is, look at the chart. You see what happened with treasuries? They rallied, pushing yields down. That helped get the tail, uh, helped make the tail so large. And you can see that yields popped up right after the one Eastern results came out. So dog plus, I gave it a D plus. Uh, All the metrics from the bid to cover at 2.34, indirects, directs, dealers at 20.4. They were all actually very close to 10 auction average averages. The pricing really was the problem. And the rallying really distorted potentially results, but it is what it is, and it really does underscore there was avoidance to some extent by investors here. There was lots of investors that jumped into a 30-year boon about five hours ago in Europe, which makes us, the sell side, look for these spreads against European rates to continue to widen. Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Rick Santelli, again, with another pretty weak demand at that Treasury auction. Let's switch gears now to General Motors, which President Biden is visiting today. The stock hitting a new all-time high and on pace for its best year since emerging from bankruptcy 11 years ago. Still, the shares have only doubled since then. Meanwhile, the newest EV makers on the block are growing much more quickly. Rivian's market cap already blew past GM's. Even Lucid Group isn't far behind. Philip Bowe spoke with the president of GM ahead of President Biden's visit today and joins us now with all the details. Hi, Phil. Kelly, huge day for General Motors as it opens Factory Zero. Now, to give you some perspective on what Factory Zero is, it is the old Hamtramck plant that for years was building internal combustion engine vehicles. They have taken less than two years to go from basically building those internal combustion engine vehicles into saying, you know what, we're only going to build EVs here. And it has a number of people saying, okay, what's next? What can General Motors do to really supercharge its plans when it comes to electric vehicles? President of General Motors, Mark Royce, tells us this is just the beginning. We're going to do 30 EVs by 2025, and that's that, no one else, no, no OEMs, no, no SPACs, no startups can make that claim. So, you know, we're in it for the long haul. Notice his reference to no OEMs, no SPACs. That's because they know what's happening with the market valuation for other companies. Here's what they're banking on. The appetite for EVs is only expected to grow dramatically from here. That 2 million figure by 2025, that would be about 12% of the total U.S. sales uh, that are expected to come along. And yet, you heard him reference OEMs, SPACs, and uh, new startups in the EV space. Take a look at the market caps again. And this is what he's talking about. The fact that Tesla has by far the largest market cap, that's not new. But it's what's happened with Rivian and with Lucid. Briefly, Lucid surpassed General Motors earlier today before it pulled back. 
And for Rivian, while it is pulling back today, it is way past General Motors in terms of market capitalization, which has a lot of people saying, hey, is the market a little too frothy here about the expectation for the EV makers? Quickly take a look at shares of General Motors. We asked Mark Royce the question, Kelly, that a lot of people have been posing, which is, look, should General Motors spin-off crews or some of its EV assets in order to capture the enthusiasm for pure play EV stocks or EV entities? And he said, no, that's not the plan. They're too integrated and they believe too much that those assets are crucial to growing General Motors in the future. So there's no plan to spin off the EV assets at this point. Well, it's been a very impressive and amazing display to watch those crews, robo-taxis start to take the roads and, and parts of California, obviously very early days. But it will be interesting for the president, Phil, because they're trying to push down high gas prices. But frankly, as long as they stay up at these levels, it is making those EVs a little bit more attractive. A little bit more attractive. There's no doubt about that. Uh, But keep in mind that the EVs that are generally on the market right now, they are higher priced models. So you're not getting to the point yet where you have people who are saying, Look, should I buy an EV for 35000 or should I buy a Camry for 35000 Just giving you a, a point of reference here and a couple of more modest-priced vehicles. When we get to EVs that are down under forty grand, that's when you really start to see the comparison for the mass market between prices at the pump versus going electric. Yeah, and Tesla's been raising prices quite a lot just in the past month, uh, past month or so. Phil, we appreciate it. Thank you, sir. We'll check in soon. Phil Abo out bet. in Chicago today. Coming up, Peloton is back in the red after its second best trading day ever. Now one analyst is naming it a fresh pick, saying there's opportunity for a tactical bottom with the shares down almost 70%. He'll make his case next. Plus, we are covering semis, software, and cents in today's earnings exchange with NVIDIA, Cisco, and Bath & Body Works, all set to report after the bell. We'll tell you what to watch and how to trade it. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's talk Peloton. It's been a wild ride for the stock, which is down about 6% today after climbing 15% yesterday on a billion-dollar stock offering. Peloton now up 8% in the past week. Even with those gains, shares are down 41% over the past two weeks and almost 70% off of their 52-week high. But my next guest says the stock has been punished enough. He named Peloton a new fresh pick in a note this morning. With us is Jonathan Comp, an analyst at RW Baird. He has an outperform rating and a $90 price target on the stock. Jonathan, welcome. So why now? Yeah, great question. Thanks for having me, Kelly. I, I think to call the downdraft here in the stock uh, stunning would be an understatement. You know, the stock's been cut in half over the last two months, and most of that's the last eight to nine trading days. And we think that's overdone here, and we think there's a lot of signs that the low 50s could be a bottom on a sustainable basis here for the stock. And yesterday's announcement of a billion-dollar equity raise certainly helps that. That removes one near-term overhang in our view. And looking forward over the next several months and quarters, we think that the catalysts here could actually improve relative to the very low expectations here. Have you been surprised at how poorly Peloton has traded this year? Yeah, there's there's a lot of factors at play. I think it's always difficult to, to separate the short-term trading from the longer-term prospects. If you step back and look at the long-term prospects, both for Peloton and, and the connected fitness and at-home fitness industry, 
Yeah, we think the prospects are, are brighter than ever. Um, if you look since COVID, the adoption rate at home has accelerated. We still think there's potentially as many as 70 million households in the U.S. alone that would consider uh, a connected fitness device. And there's tens of millions of bikes and treadmills that are installed in, in houses in the U.S. alone today. So we think the opportunity is as bright as ever. Certainly, there's been a pull forward of demand and sort of a plateauing or flattening this year against some pretty tough COVID-driven comparisons. But looking, looking beyond the next few years, we think that the outlook is very bright. So even though there's a lot of volatility in the short term, uh, we don't think that should detract from the long-term opportunity. You know, people were scratching their heads yesterday because usually you do a secondary, especially one under a little bit of pressure, and the shares tank, and instead they rallied. So one analyst I saw was saying, well, maybe they need to announce some M&A pretty quickly that would validate the shares' performance yesterday. Would you like to see them go that route? Yeah, that's not necessarily our view at this point. I think if you look at what's, what's impacted the stock, concerns about the need for equity and, and more capital has been one of three or four different factors. So we think uh, having, having a balance sheet now with more than $2 billion of cash on hand really helps alleviate some of those short-term questions. Whether or not that goes towards just general purposes or M&A, uh, you know, that'll be seen here going forward. But we think just the base business, the, the bikes, the new tread they launched, some of the new products uh, really in its own can drive a lot of the growth that we expect going forward. So um, M&A would sort of be on top of that, but that's not part of our fundamental thesis. So would you say that your fundamental thesis is the same as it was from the summer when you were more at like a 160 rate, uh, price target on the stock? In other words, have the facts changed or has just the stock price changed in your view? Yeah, it's, it, it's a very fair question. I mean, certainly the, the short-term uncertainty about demand has, has changed from a short-term picture. And we are still ahead of the next few months, which are very important for this category. We think it's actually going to be a good holiday as seasonal demand shows up and as demand for the new tread really, really starts to show over the next several months. Uh, maybe stepping back, bigger picture, if you look at the stock today, it is still up 70 percent versus January of 2020. The subscription business is also about 70% larger than we thought at that stage, going back pre-COVID. And this is a better business fundamentally. It's larger, it's having better engagement, it has uh, still low churn, and, and we think very strong opportunity here. So we think this is a good, good opportunity, even though uh, the, the path to get here has been a lot bumpier than, than we would have expected. Sure, I'm still contemplating whether to ever get one, but I'll probably be a permanent contemplator. <laughs> Unless the unless well, it's now's, free now's on a monthly a basis. Yeah, no, the price has come down. Jonathan, thanks for your time today and for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. Jonathan Comp with RW Baird. Still ahead, one startup is looking to bridge the gap between the metaverse and the real world without relying on ads. And they're backed by some big names in the media and tech world. And as we head to break, take a look at Workday hitting a record high ahead of its earnings tomorrow after the bell. Cowan upgrading the stock to a buy-in, Jim Cramer says in his newsletter he expects it could be a real blowout quarter. For more of Jim's insight and trades, you can sign up for the CBC Investing Club newsletter. Just point your phone's camera at the QR code on that screen. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Let's get a quick check on markets as we're almost half past the hour. Dow's down 151, so we're near session lows, a little bit off that level. It's the worst performer today, uh, quite clearly, down four-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ down a quarter percent. S&P only down eight points. A mixed day for the sectors where real estate, financials, and industrials are all lagging. Discretionary and healthcare 
are your winners. So we're watching financials in particular today after that 20-year auction wasn't that great, has yields moving higher. Here are some of the movers this hour. TJX, parent of TJ Maxx, hitting a new all-time high, leading the S&P on the back of strong earnings. Companies saying it's well-positioned for the holiday season, easing concerns about product availability because of supply chain issues. TJX is up 8% today. We are watching the 71 level. If you remember an earnings exchange yesterday, it's at 75 now. Visa, meanwhile, hitting a nine-month low after Amazon said it'll stop accepting its credit cards issued in the U.K next year, citing high fees. Visa has underperformed the Dow this year. It's down nearly 7%. Uh, You can see that performance gap right there. And the auto dealers are lower today after Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas warned about direct-to-consumer threats from EV makers like Tesla. Even Volvo's going direct-to-consumer with their newest offering. Anyway, he's downgrading Penske and Sonic to underweight and cutting his price targets on Group 1, Lithium Motors, AutoNation, and Asbury Automotive. They're all in the red today. In fact, Penske is down 11%, Group 1 down 10%. Some huge moves to the downside. He doesn't have a buy rating on any of them. And moments ago, Moderna filed for emergency use authorization with the FDA for its COVID booster vaccine for all adults ages 18 and older. mRNA is getting a nice about 5% pop on that news. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. The man known as the QAnon shaman has been sentenced to 41 months in prison after storming the Capitol on January 6th. Jacob Chansley said that his behavior was, quote, indefensible, but he is also not a violent man or a white supremacist. And on the news, the defense is set to begin its closing remarks in the trial over the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Hear their last words to the jury tonight at 7 Eastern. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon has pleaded not guilty to obstructing the January 6th congressional probe. Bannon was indicted last week on two counts of contempt of Congress. More than 125 victims of that deadly Astroworld crowd surge are suing rapper Travis Scott and others for at least $750 million. Other defendants include the rapper Drake, who also performed at Astroworld, and Apple, which streamed the music festival. And the TSA says it is getting ready for a Thanksgiving surge of air travel. It expects to screen 20 million passengers during the Thanksgiving travel period. That's from this Friday through the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And that's nearly as much as pre-pandemic levels. So, Kelly, between this and Times Square and the ball dropping, it seems like we are... We are getting there. Hopefully. Rahel, thank you so much. Rahel Solomon. Up next, shares of Bath & Body Works sliding about 6% since spinning off Victoria's Secret in August. Will holiday spending get it back on track? Cisco earnings haven't missed in 20 quarters. Will today be 21? And the street expecting $3 billion in gaming revenue for NVIDIA in Q3. We have all the key metrics to watch and how to position ahead of today's After the Bell report right after this. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for another edition of Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three key reports on deck. Today's lineup is NVIDIA, Cisco, and Bath & Body Works. Let's kick things off with NVIDIA and Monster Stock. The street expecting earnings of $1.11 per share on about $6.8 billion in revenue this afternoon. Now, investors are keeping an eye on the key gaming and data center uh, segments. Shares are lower into the report, but they're still up 130 percent this year. Let's bring in Josh Lipton for the story here, along with Tim Seymour of Seymour Asset Management. He's the chief investment officer and CNBC contributor. And Tim will give us today's trade. So welcome to both of you. Josh, NVIDIA, I have to imagine high expectations for this one. 
So, uh, Kelly, heading into this print, as you mentioned, this stock is up about 130 percent this year. It's up about 50 percent just since that company last reported results back in August. So expectations certainly hot heading into the print. Besides the bottom and the top, investors are going to have a lot of questions about that gaming segment. Remember, this company's chips improve video game performance in PCs and notebooks. And there's some interesting puts and takes in the quarter. Analysts will point out that supply is relatively limited of Ampere. That's the company's latest and greatest. Uh, product for gaming. So how does that impact ASAP, ASPs or average selling prices in the quarter? Also, that data center segment, faster growing, higher margin chips. I caught up with Chris Rowland over at Susquehanna. For Chris, that data center revenue, that's the bogey he wants to know about. For him, that number is going to be $2.71 billion. If he's right, that's a jump of about 42%, Kelly. Wow. Okay. So, Tim, what are you watching for? What would you do with the stock? Well, I'm reluctant hold on NVIDIA. I, I think, you know, Josh outlined the price performance. I mean, at six months, you're up 118%. And, and the valuation of the stock um, is, is kind of why I'm a reluctant hold. I, I don't think you, you sell NVIDIA on valuation, but I, I, you know, it's traded expensive in the past. And I, I do think the, the mentions on the strength in cloud, uh, even there's some implications, I think you're going to see some strength there, even for some of the, the hard drive uh, for a, a WDC, for a scan disk. I mean, I think there's, there's a broader story that they're going to help tell the tale on. I think we priced in a lot of love in terms of AI uh, and even the metaverse. And, and as much as NVIDIA He's got their own Omniverse, which is their essentially digital simulation platform that's essentially meeting up with the metaverse. There's just so much into this stock, but I would never bet against NVIDIA. I think the competitive landscape, including AMD, yeah. are hot on their trail. No, it's, it's well said. It's also interesting, Josh, that you, this is another one of those companies that has run well ahead of the street. I think the shares around 294 and the average street price target is still around 280. Yeah, listen, um, You've had some analysts certainly have questions about valuation here. Others will say, listen, they think NVIDIA is simply very well positioned in a lot of areas that investors clearly care a lot about, AI, cloud, autonomous vehicles, and the metaverse. That'll be interesting because there we know some companies are building out these virtual realms, and some investors bet NVIDIA is a beneficiary. And as Tim said, NVIDIA also rolled out its own software, these set of uh, software tools that NVIDIA says are just simply going to be critical when creating these virtual realms. So you would bet CEO Jensen Wong will get some questions on that on the call, which is at 5 p.m. Eastern, and we'll be on that. Time. All right. And we'll see if people have to mark things up to keep up with them or if the shares uh, rebound, uh, return to earth, let's uh, say. Josh, thank you so much, our Josh Lipton. Let's move along to Cisco now, which is out with first quarter earnings tonight. Analysts are expecting 80 cents a share there on $13 billion in sales. They shouldn't get a boost from remote work, but in the last earnings, a company warned supply chain struggles could hurt results. It's also the first report since they've split revenue into seven new categories, including hybrid work security and internet for the future. Shares are up 26% this year, outperforming the S&P as old tech names have seemed to turn a corner here. Julia Borson has more. Julia, what are we watching for? Well, I think, Kelly, it's really this struggle between the two things. On one hand, we do expect enterprise spending to increase significantly. And on the other hand, the question is, how much are the supply chain issues going to weigh on results? We got warnings in the company's last quarter that they were seeing shortages of certain types of chips. 
On the, and, but one thing that could work to the stock's benefit is that that might already be factored into estimates and expectations for the quarter. So that's going to be the key struggle at play here. And then, Kelly, just want to point out some other key things that the company has really been pivoting to focus on recurring revenue streams. That makes it a lot more predictable. In the prior quarter, 80 percent of software sales were from subscriptions. The more that shifts over there, the more predictable that revenue becomes. And then also, this is the first quarter in which Cisco is breaking up its divisions into seven new divisions. So services and products into these seven new divisions, including hybrid work, end-to-end security, and internet for the future. So these will be key new areas to watch. It's a new way to parse the results for this company. Uh, Yeah, and they also have a new Facebook meta partnership. It seems to be popping up everywhere. Tim, this is the only one of our trio today I think you're sort of clearly bullish on. Yeah, I am. I, I own it. Um, I think the valuation makes a lot of sense, and we'll get to that in a second. Julie outlined you know, where the trends here, at least on enterprise spend and even small business SMBs, uh, are, are very, very strong. Uh, I think we've well flagged, and some of their networking peers have you know, given us all the, the, the necessary insights into where supply disruption and whatnot are, are, are hitting the business. I think to the extent that you've you factored that in, uh, but it, it gets back to where Cisco really is building on. This is a hardware company that wants to be a software company. Again, Julie uh, talked about the the recurring revenue and and even perpetual software. So this is the higher part of the valuation. And I think investors are are comfortable with putting a hybrid multiple on this old tech company going new tech. And and I think you're somewhere around 18 times with hardware at a 10 times, uh, subscription software at 25 times, everything else somewhere in between. And and it makes it a really attractive longer-term story. And, And I think the high single digit Growth numbers uh, are, are enough uh, with the profitability inherent in those new age models. So uh, really like the story. I think you've, you've weathered some, some uh, I think, some reassessments. And I think the bar has been well set going sure. into this number. Yeah, I think we were saying 20 consecutive quarters they've beat. We'll see if it's 21 tonight. Julia, thank you. Finally today, the tongue twister. Bath and Body Works reporting Q3 results later. <laughs> the street expecting 60 cents a share on $1.6 billion in sales. They did crush earnings estimates last quarter. They've now got a holiday shopping boost coming their way, perhaps. They have a leg up in the supply chain, sourcing 90% of their inventory from North America. Still, they're down about 6% since formally changing their names from L Brands back in August. Let's bring in Courtney Reagan for the story here. Court? Hi, Kelly. I know you love these uh, very confusing tickers, right? So this is <laughs> Bath and Body Works. Remember, this is the company that sells the lotions, the hand sanitizers. And sort of just that being fundamentally what it is, is something that gives a lot of analysts some positive momentum going into this print. They believe it's going to be a winner for the holiday season. They believe it's going to put up some good results, even though it's comping a really tough quarter from last year. It saw same-store sales grow 54%. This was one of the retailers that was allowed to remain open, remember, when many others were closed because it sells things like hand soaps and sanitizers. So they were really able to capture on that repeat customer and that consumable purchase. It's also a highly giftable item. So as shoppers return to stores and sort of find comfort in those special smells around the holiday season, I know a lot of my Midwest friends still love this namesake brand here. Um, <laughs> there are expected to see some strength going forward. And as you pointed out in the intro, I think it's really important to note that supply chain issues may be much less here for this name because the vast majority of the production is done right here in the United States. Incredible. They should get a visit from the president, uh, Tim. But what do you say about the stock? Uh, and I'm going to be careful not to call them. Yeah. 
Bed, Bath and Bed, Body Bath, Works. Body Works <laughs> and Best Buy and Best Best Buy. And, and so but, but I, I think this is in the retail growth space. This is a value stock. And, and actually, if you compare them to an Ulta uh, and, and where they have a similar growth margin in terms of their top line, but a, a growth uh, number on their top line, but that the margin, uh, if you look at the business, this is a low 20s. Uh, margin business and a much higher margin business for some of the reasons that are related to supply chain. Some of just related to the products they sell, lower labor, lower sales, intensive business, no expiration dates, you know, you name it. Um, that's the reason why, I, I, although I am a hold here, um, I think the holiday season is going to be great for them. I, I think I'm probably a buy into the holiday season and probably a sell as we get into next year because I think some of the same trends that were secular headwinds for this type of a company uh, and other big box and other retailers that, that I think you can be Amazoned out on a lot of this stuff um, is something to worry about. But yeah. if you put uh, an Ulta EBITDA multiple on this, this stock's probably 80% cheap on a relative basis. And I think in the short term, you probably stay higher. Wow. All right. We'll leave it there. Tim, great stuff. Thank you, Tim Seymour. Joining us. Courtney, our pleasure. Appreciation as well. Courtney Reagan. We've got a news alert coming on consumer company filing to go public. Another IPO. Who's it now? Leslie Picker with the details. Leslie? <laughs> Hey, Kelly, we could play that game every day. But this one we've been waiting for. This is Chobani. They filed confidentially back in July, now revealing the goods through their S-1, which was filed uh, a little while ago. Now they say that they're going public uh, listing on the NASDAQ under the symbol CHO. Lead underwriters here are going to be Goldman Sachs and Bank of America. Uh, This is a company that has seen pretty big top line numbers, over a billion dollars annually. However, growth around 13 percent and still remaining unprofitable, showing uh, net losses for the first nine months of the year, totaling about $24 million. Now, I was just going through some of the risk factors, and it's clear that there is one word on the mind of this company, and they know what's going to be on the mind of investors, and that is inflation. What pricing uh, does to their future results, the changes in the market price for milk, which is, of course, the primary raw material used to make the yogurt that they sell. Uh, They also say that they source uh, over 70 percent of their North American raw milk from one supplier, which is Dairy Farmers of America. Uh, And then, of course, the raw materials that go into the packaging uh, and all of the the things that go into just being able to sell uh, their yogurt and other products in stores and their ability, of course, to expand into other areas uh, like oat milk. So this will definitely be an interesting one to watch. The timing here suggests they could get out before the end of the year if they so choose, uh, but we will be keeping a close eye on it. A very long time to wait uh, for this one for Chibani. Leslie, mm-hmm. thank you so much. Our Leslie Picker all over it today. Still ahead, fancy financials. We're not talking about banks. The sector is posting big earnings growth thanks to a bit of engineering. We'll explain right after this. Welcome back. Retailers have shown some major earnings growth in their reports this week and for the past decade, really. But there's a catch. Bob Bassani joins us now to explain. Bob? You know, uh, the good news here is the retail sales and earnings have really been very strong. Here's the bad news. For some retailers, much of the earnings growth in the last decade has occurred because they've turned into buyback monsters who've been aggressively buying back stock and reducing their share count. Look here. In the last 10 years, companies like Dillard's, Kohl's, Gap, Home Depot, Target, and many others have dramatically reduced their share count by buying back stock. The share count reduction has made earnings look stronger because there are fewer share is outstanding. It's a pretty neat trick. In many cases, revenue growth has been modest or non-existent. Coles and Dillard's, for example, both have roughly the same revenues as a few years ago, but the earnings 
are higher. Some of this is because corporations have learned to operate more efficiently, so more of the profit flows through to the bottom line. But it's also because there's a constant, endless stream of buybacks. Now, many retailers, including Target, Kohl's, and TJX, suspended buybacks during the pandemic. But they've since returned to buying back stock. TJX, for example, repurchased $300 million in stock in the second quarter, which was the first buyback since the first quarter of 2021. And they're increasing it now with their recent report. With cash flow increasing, should companies go back to buying stock? Well, some would prefer that companies just increase the dividend instead. And, you know, the thing here is all other companies just want them to invest more in terms of the companies and put more back into it. But... You know, they already are. For example, Walmart is spending something like $13 billion in capital expenditures this year. Simply put, buybacks make earnings look better, and companies want that, and a lot of shareholders want it too. Controversial, but it's getting even bigger. It's changed so much more quickly than expected, Bob. We thought the companies would be paying back debt for years before they could pivot. What accounts for this rapid turnabout? Well, you see, the cash flow is dramatically increased for these companies, so they can devote more to buying back shares. But again, this is very political now. The Democrats want to tax buybacks. They're so upset about this. They want more money to go back into hiring people back that were fired during the pandemic or just for investing more money in the businesses themselves. But obviously, individuals seem to seem to seem to feel they're getting something out of this. It's not just corporate executives. It does increase the earnings per share. All right, Bob. Thank you, Bob Bassani. Still ahead, more and more companies from Nike to Disney are talking about their plans in the metaverse. We'll speak with the CEO of an app that launched last night to the number one spot in the Apple App Store about how they plan to mint metaverse money. That's next. Welcome back. Huge companies like Facebook, or now Meta, are betting big on the metaverse. And a new social media app called Octi is doing the same. The app allows users to post videos, kind of like TikTok, with a library of AR, augmented reality backdrops, and objects to pair with their content. Octi also allows users to upload their NFTs and features a Coinbase system to reward growth on the platform. It debuted as number one in the App Store last night. Is this the start of metaverse social media? Joining me now is Octi CEO Justin Fuse. Justin, it's great to have you. For our audience who has no idea what I was just talking about, can you explain what Octi is? (laughs) Absolutely, Kelly. So Octi is a new kind of social platform that allows people to create content anywhere with anyone, with all their friends, and they can be in different worlds. They can be astronauts, sort of like really emerging the physical and digital world and creating a totally new kind of content that we haven't seen on social media yet. So I think we're showing some clips as you're speaking. To me, it kind of looks like TikTok. What's the difference? So the difference is the user's ability to blend different worlds, blend different objects, different filters, and mix and match to create uh, a storyline that they want to create uh, to create a different kind of engagement. And also there's a great interaction with the objects themselves. So there's a full library of of digital objects. Go ahead, Kelly. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I was going to ask if it was sort of like TikTok crossed with a video game. Exactly. It's a gamified, it's a gamified social platform that brings in elements of the metaverse, brings, as you mentioned, brings in a really compelling coin system for rewards for great content. So if you're creative on this platform, you're getting real rewards. You're going to get coins, you're going to get Octi coins, you can go spend those on digital goods, which is very exciting, and a large number of our users are already doing that. But you're also able to go buy real physical goods from any of our 20 partners. 
Yeah. So the there's a couple different kind of business questions to talk about here. You know, number one is kind of how you guys would make money. I don't know if anyone's too concerned about that yet. But also, I know it's important to you that maybe the ad model is not your business model. Exactly. Explain that choice and what that means. So, I mean, it's a the ad traditional sort of TV ad model has been all over social media, and that's really the only model that we've seen with any of the major platforms. What's very unique about Octi, very special, is that we're not doing that. And that sets you up in a totally different way. Your perspective of the user, your perspective of what you, your relationship with your user is entirely different. You're not as focused on raw view count. You're more focused on the kind of great engagements you can create and the relationships around the products and the community around the, the different videos and things like that. So it's very much quality over quantity. And that gives you a great advantage in building a social platform like this. It reminds me a little bit of kind of the don't be evil mantra, which is now morphed into mm-hmm. kind of a punchline with Google today. You know, when you're yeah. when you're new and yeah. you're, you're growing fast, you can afford to be idealistic. And then at some point it becomes about, sure. you know, we're worth a trillion dollars. We're 90 percent ad supported. I, I'm not saying you're going to make that transition. But my question is, is there a, a change in the nature of this platform that allows you to do business in a different way that's not ad-driven? And if so, what is that change? And, and how significant is that from the platforms we've seen in the past? Absolutely. So from the ground up, there are no ads. There will likely never be any ads on this platform. It's all about the engagement with the objects, the brands, the items, the clothes, fantasy stuff, everything you can think of that we are trying to basically drive affinity for. So you really have the whole cycle of consideration down into purchase on one platform. And what that means is we're not just doing ads to kick people out to other to other places. We're actually doing everything here. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're we're never going to have that same problem. And, and it's a really powerful idea. So how do you guys make money and uh, sort of talk about what your plans are for 2022? Sure. So we make money when users actually buy things. So we make either digital or physical goods. We make money uh, primarily on these physical goods. We we have relationships. Initially, some of our early partners were just fully subsidizing some of these purchases, but users can take their coins and they can go shop for basically anything a Gen Z user could actually want to buy with their money. And we try to establish relationships with the partners and we take a cut on that purchase. So it's a, in, in many ways, that's a more old school uh, wholesale yeah. retail model. But we're applying it to this to this space, and it's just taking off. People love it. The general store is the metaverse, something like that. (laughs) Justin, you've explained it very, very well. I I feel like I understand, and it's great to have you on and kind of look at get an early look at what will play out here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kelly. Justin Fuse is the co-founder and CEO of Octi. Still ahead, restaurants taking a threefold hit between rising costs, the lack of workers, and supply chain issues. And it's already becoming clear who has pricing power and who doesn't. We will dig into those names next. Welcome back, everybody. It's no secret restaurants are facing headwinds from nearly all sides between supply chain snarls, labor shortages, and inflation. But some are better positioned to deal with them than others. Kate Rogers joins us now with the names. Kate? Hey there, Kelly. Well, overall menu prices are up nearly 5% in the last year as restaurant commodity prices soar with beef up nearly 60% and fats and oils up 50%. But Chipotle says it's well positioned to handle rising costs and is flexing pricing power with the ability to protect margins moving ahead. We believe we still have plenty of pricing power to use at our discretion. And, uh, you know, we'll use it when we 
need to, uh, but obviously we'd prefer to really keep our value proposition as strong as possible. Now, McDonald's said it increased prices around 6% and saw no consumer pullback in the most recent quarter. Shake Shack also said inflation in both commodity prices and labor are pressuring the company's margins, but executives think they also have additional room to run. This sentiment was echoed by Yum! Brands as well. Meanwhile, Brinker International saw pressures from both labor and commodity costs eat into its margins, as did fellow casual named Denny's, whose exec said margins were volatile and it would be several quarters before staffing challenges were eased. Now, if you take a look at stock performance, those with pricing power also happen to be some of the best performers for the year, with Chipotle, McDonald's, and Yum! Brands all up double digits. Meanwhile, Brinker is the biggest laggard in the sector, and Denny's is up just fractionally. Kelly, back you over know, to you. Kate, some people were telling me the other day there was like a country song about Applebee's they thought was driving its relative outperformance to Chili's. <laughs> that is so funny. I, I know all of those viral things do impact sales in some cases. Remember the Beyonce Red Lobster thing a few years ago as well. Uh, but I think it's just interesting with the pricing power thing that we're talking about here. Casuals more associated with a sit-down experience, you know, whereas some of the fast food and QSR names are, are kind of grab yeah. and go. So definitely two different offerings there. And uh, consumers tend to be gravitating towards the ones, you know, that are a quicker experience, perhaps a little better price. And just as we had ventured out to this one Italian spot in town thinking this is so cute and we can't wait to go here all the time it closed after 20 some years in business and it just felt like such a sign of the time so unfortunate kate thanks so much we appreciate it kate rogers on the restaurant beat today that does it for the exchange everybody you're listening to the exchange here's today's show